Welcome to the Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle, with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Meslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. This episode is brought to you by LMNT Electrolytes. This month, we're switching it up with an exclusive offer that's only for VIP LMNT partners, including Carnivore Cast listeners. You can now receive this free sample pack along with any regular purchase when you use my custom link, which is provided in the show notes or my Instagram link in bio. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash carnivorecast, all one word. And as I said, I'll include the link in the show notes. LMNT electrolytes are convenient, evidence-based, and delicious. And get yours today to help support the show. Thank you. Dave Champion at doctor.reality underscore Dave Champion is a former army ranger with a law enforcement background. In the private sector, Dave is a businessman turned journalist, having hosted his own radio and television shows from 2000 through 2018. Um, Dave is the author of Body Science, which details 60 years of lies by Big Med, Big Pharma, Big Food, and Big Gov concerning nutrition and human physiology. It's the result of research into the core principles of human physiology, leading to a visionary understanding of how every person on the planet can get healthy, stay healthy, and reduce their odds of chronic disease to virtually zero. Um, I've had the pleasure of reading sample chapters and pages of Body Science and listened to Dave twice on Casey Ryan Ruff's podcast. Highly recommend him. Um, he has really interesting ideas and a great way of thinking about things, and it's very logical, which I really appreciate. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'd love to um, start with start with your story. I think it's always really helpful to hear um, the background of, of how you got to, to where you are, um, and it seems like you've le- led many different lives. <laughs> so we can focus on the physiology um, aspect, at least for this episode. Um, so I'd love to hear like what led you to digging into some of these topics um, and learning more about the world of the human body and nutrition. Sure. You know, as we're sitting here talking today, I think I've been in the gym 38 years. And, and probably like a lot of gym rats, I accumulated, accumulated a lot of things that I thought were true that were actually very questionable in reality. And one day I was at the gym and across the gym, I saw this fellow and at least from the back, I think it was the tattoos on his arm and his shaved, he has a shaved head like I do. I thought that looks like Sean, but nah, that can't be Sean because Sean is like another 100, 120 pounds heavier than that. I mean, Sean, the last time I'd laid eyes on him was seriously obese, right? So I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, nah, can't be Sean. All of a sudden he turns around like, it is Sean. And he's down like 100, 120 pounds. So I I had to know, right? I I walked over. And by that point, I didn't know I was insulin resistant at that time, but I was gaining weight and couldn't lose it no matter what I did, right? So to see such dramatic weight loss and somebody who I knew was also a gym rat, I'm like, okay, I got to get the 411. So I walked over. And we struck up a conversation, and I said, you look great. How'd this happen? And he says, oh, well, I'm doing keto. Now, of course, he's referring to the diet, and I tend to focus on the phrase living in ketosis. 
because I, I think that's a much more powerful phrase and has a lot more meaning behind it. But nevertheless, he was answering my question and he said, I, I'm doing keto. At that point, what the hell is that? We're talking years ago, right? What the hell is that? So the b- basic takeaway he left me with was, well, I've lost all this weight because I'm eating 80% fat. And after all the time I'd been in the gym and all the stuff I thought I knew, I was like, yeah, sure you did. (laughs) Uh, But I couldn't deny what I'd seen with my own eyes. So if he was telling me the truth about what he was eating and I saw the results. So I got home and I told Jan, I said, look, I got to look into this. Uh, If this is true, this is phenomenal. So every night I start doing the research and uh, at that time, I, I really wasn't all that well-versed in ketosis. I was just looking at the keto diet because that was all I knew. And after a couple of nights, I told Jen, I said, okay, I got, I got the framework of that. Now I need to know if it's safe. Physiologically speaking, is it safe? And so I spent almost another three weeks doing that. And I came back in and I said, honey, um, it's real and it's safe. And uh, I want to do it. And she's like, okay, let's do it. Oh, you're going to do it with me? Yeah, of course I am. <laughs> no, she didn't have a weight problem. She, almost five years ago now. Okay. So she didn't have a weight problem, but she was, you know, being a good wife, she was <laughs> joining with me in it. Um, and we embarked on that. And, of course, when I flipped into ketosis, which for me was on day four, um, there was just no looking back whatsoever. And as I'm looking at these profound changes, I'm like, okay, so it's great that I'm doing this. It's great that I'm having these results. It's great that I've done the research that I have up to this point. But there's got to be a lot more going on, especially since it conflicted with so many of the mainstream narratives I'd heard about health and fitness. I said, there's got to be a lot more going on. And I'm one of these guys, I, I have this really obnoxious trait. If I think the mainstream establishment narrative is a bunch of lies, I will spend as much time as it takes to get to the bottom of it. And that was the genesis. That was the moment that the research began that concluded in uh, with the publication of Body Science. I think that's a fantastic trait. I don't think it's obnoxious at all. <laughs> um, I think we need I don't know more if of my, I don't know if my wife would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I, I, I love to talk about some of the concepts in the book as well. Um, one of the things that uh, I really like that you, you you gave a few names to things that um, I wasn't even familiar with. And I've, I've spent a lot of time in this space uh, learning about nutrition, ketosis. Um, and you talk about the lipid lymphatic system. Can, mm-hmm. can you first define like, for a lot of folks, what the lymphatic system is, and then um, what the lipid lymphatic system is. Okay, so the lymph system, I don't know how many people are even aware there is such a thing in the human body. Uh, It performs numerous functions. Um, I, I would say probably the most critical function is that it is absolutely essential to our immune process. Uh, If you don't have a working, uh, healthy, vibrant, lymphatic system, uh, which is a series of things. They're like blood vessels, uh, for a parallel to your audience. They're like blood vessels, and they run throughout the body. But unlike the, the, the blood system, that obviously the pump is the heart, the 
lymphatic system has lymph fluid rather than blood, and it has no pump. The way the lymph fluid circulates throughout the body is the contraction in one form or another of skeletal muscle. It can be anything from squats to over-the-head shoulder press, bench press, back, whatever. It it is the contraction-release, contraction-release, contraction-release of skeletal muscle. That serves as the pump that moves the lymph fluid around. The lymph fluid is, to put it, I guess, in really simple terms, it's a waste removal system. Um, And it it has a huge role to play in the immune system. And and if I could take just a slight left turn for a second. um, Of course, we've heard all of this stuff for the last 32 months about how the elderly are the ones that are at risk from COVID-19 and serious outcomes up to and including death. And and, and it really irks me because they, they always say the elderly. And by that, usually the establishment means 65 years of age and older. And they make it sound like because you're old, your body's not in good shape anymore. And I think when it comes to something, COVID-19 is a great opportunity to talk about it, but we could be talking about um, any sort of pathogen that causes disease in the body. What the, the truth of the matter is that people have abused the crap out of their body and ignored their lymph system for their entire life. And so that lymph system is not providing what it needs to provide to make their immune system function correctly. And then we say, oh, it's the elderly. No, it's not the elderly. It's the people who didn't know, didn't find out, didn't take care of themselves and are now paying the consequence for those actions. And the reason I just want to bring this up is, I don't know, maybe you have people in your audience who are 60, 65, 70, 80. It's not over. (laughs) You're not going to die. All of this is reversible. Okay, so uh, it takes a while. It's not instantaneous, but it is reversible. All right, so back to the lymph, the, the lymphatic system and the lymph fluid. All right, so then we have what I had to find a name for, what I ended up entitling in the book, the lymphatic lipid system. And The reason that I talked about that is I needed to contrast that against something, again, I had to find a name because these systems have never been named by the mainstream medical community. I had to name something called the hepatic lipid system. So it's important as we begin the conversation, we understand we're contrasting the hepatic lipid system with the lymphatic lipid system. Now, the lymphatic both of these systems, by the way, they, they take something from point A to point Z. That's why I refer to them as systems, right? Um, you can track from the moment this begins until the moment that process ends. And it is just shocking to me that the medical community has never put a name to it. And I think there might be some reasons for that. But nevertheless, the when you eat dietary fat, unlike other macronutrients, fat remains fat at all times until your body burns it. So what happens when you eat dietary fat, it goes down to the intestines. Uh, It's not digested as are other macronutrients. It's merely emulsified. And then how do we get it from the intestines into the body? Fat cannot on its own transit the intestinal wall into the body. So the body creates out of proteins something called a cholemicron. And the cholemicron surrounds these emulsified fatty acids. 
And once the fatty acids are contained within the clonimicron, then the clonimicron can transit the intestinal wall. So what happens when this dietary fat is emulsified, it then goes into micron. the micron transits the intestinal wall. So now the fat is inside the body. As a brief note, the, medical, the medical world does not consider the intestines to be inside the body or inner to the body. Um, if it has a hole at the top and a hole at the bottom, you can put something in the top, it comes out the bottom. The medical world does not consider that internal to the body. Yes, it passes through the body, it's not considered an internal part of the body. Okay, so now the, the fatty acids have gotten into the body. What, what happens to them there? Again, this is part of this system. Once they transit the wall, they are uptaken into the lymphatic system. They hitch a ride in the lymph fluid and they go up and they go above the heart and they come down and they are released by the thoracic portal down into or the, the more properly the thoracic duct into your bloodstream. Now, you got these microns. They're cruising around your bloodstream. What do they do? Well, when our bodies are functioning in ketosis, which is the correct genetic way our bodies are uh, coded to function, the cells burn almost exclusively fatty acids for energy. So the purpose of the microns is they travel throughout the blood and they, interestingly, uh, we've all heard of HDL, the supposed good cholesterol, uh, but there is no really good or bad cholesterol. All very versions of cholesterol have a job to do. So we're gonna talk about HDL. The microns they meet up with HDL particles as they're going through the blood. And uh, the HDL particles, they move over APOE and APOC, which won't get at all that, over into the microns, And the APOE in particular serves to unlock the cargo door of the microns. The microns then they circulate, they come and they link up with one of the hundred trillion cells of your body. And because of this, the signaling with the APOC, with the signaling, it then offloads, I, I, often, I refer to it in body science as like a delivery truck, it offloads the fatty acids into the cells, it closes its door and it moves on its way, okay? That's how dietary fat gets into the cells. From there, the cells oxidize it for energy. So that's the system. You put something in your mouth and however long it is, five minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, however long it is later, your cells oxidize it for energy and that's how your cells energize themselves, okay? So that's the A to Z of the lymphatic. There's, there's a lot more to it, and I go into a lot more detail of the book. But that is essentially the outline of the lymphatic lipid system. It is to deliver your dietary fat to the cells, which is their far, far, far preferred source of energy, where it's oxidized, and that's how we live. And by the way, one closing note on this. People, we tend to look at our body as, as a whole thing, and, and therefore we lose track. I think of the more important aspect. When I talk about the 100 trillion cells of your body, I, I like to tell students that each of those cells, you should consider that as a separate individual, if you will. And these 100 trillion individuals cooperate and this is what they look like. But each one of them has to be treated properly. And if we systemically screw a hundred trillion cells, we're screwing ourselves.
Yeah, I really like that. And you you talked about how many people abuse the lymphatic system, the lipid lymphatic system. How is eating a <clears throat> carbohydrate-based diet abusing the system? Okay, so now we're going to switch from the lymphatic lipid system over to the hepatic lipid system. Now, hepatic means the liver, and, and that's the basis of the hepatic lipid system. And again, just like the lymphatic system or lymphatic lipid system, it's an A to Z process. So people eat a lot of carbohydrates, and of course, their blood glucose level soars. And to address that, because high, glucose, high blood glucose is injurious to the tissues of the body, I don't think people really understand that. And when we talk about injurious to the tissues of the body, what we're talking about, again, coming back to this theme, injurious to those individual cells. Every single cell is poisoned by high blood gl glucose, okay? The body's got to resolve that because high blood glucose damages tissues and organs. So it's got to find a way to bring that blood glucose down. So the, as you well know, the pancreas then begins uh, putting uh, insulin out into the system. The insulin does several things. One of the things it does in terms of the hepatic lipid system is it signals the liver and it says, hey, man, we've got an emergency. Look at all this poison running around in the blood. We need to get it out of the blood. So the liver, it accommodates that. Um, it, it accommodates it. It's really not the liver's, it, it shouldn't ever be used except handful of times a year. But of course, Americans, the way they eat, it's, it's used multiple times a day, right? For decades. So the liver then begins taking all of these, this, this high blood glucose, and it converts it into triglycerides, okay? which is, a, is fatty acids, right? But remember, you've already got fatty acids coming correctly and properly as the body intends through the lymphatic lipid system. And really what's happening now is the body is saying, holy cow, we got to get rid of all this, this insanely high blood glucose. So we're going to turn it into triglycerides, which ironically is what the, the cells are coded to burn, right? It packages those, uh, the, the manufactured triglycerides, the converted triglycerides into VLDL. And it puts that into the bloodstream. And they go around and they're trying to offload their triglycerides into the 100 trillion cells of the body. They're like, hey, man, I've got triglycerides on board for you. But a body in glucosis, as opposed to ketosis, that's another term I had to make up, glucosis, um, we all know that the, the mode where you fuel the 100 trillion cells of your body with keto bodies, that's referred to ketosis. Science had never put a name to the other hemisphere, because there's only two, glucosis and ketosis. Science, the medical community, had never put a name to the one that probably 99% of the population of the world is, is using, which is glucosis. So when you're living in glucosis and these VLDL particles come along and they say, hey, I've got triglycerides on sale, here you go. This, when your body cells in glucosis are saying, no man, we don't want any of that because we're busy incinerating glucose, which is another, and of course, we know that the mainstream narrative is that cells, the 100 trillion cells of your body burning glucose for energy is just the way man's intended to operate. And it's exactly the opposite. So 
these VLDLs are trying to get rid of their triglycerides. The cells are like, no, thanks, man. We are busy incinerating glucose, which is another part of the process to get that high glucose back down to what I call baseline. So now the VLDLs are, what do we do now? We've tried and the cells don't want any. So then as a backup, backup to a backup, because this whole thing is, a, is a, an emergency mechanism, the liver converting the high, glucose, the, the high glucose level to triglycerides and the VLDLs trying to offload it into the cells. This is all a backup emergency system that allows the bodies to survive in unusual circumstances. So then the VLDLs meet the adipose tissue. We all know what that is. The white, the white fat cells, especially, you know, you got it around your butt, you got it around your waist, okay, the adipose tissue. And the, v, the, the VLDLs, they need to convert to IDLs and then LDLs. And then they need to be reabsorbed in the liver. But here's the thing. They can't return to the liver until they've offloaded their triglycerides. They have to offload them someplace. So they offload them into the adipose tissue. And a lot of people, I think, imagine that the way we get fat is we create more and more fat cells. That's, that is not so. Pretty much after your late teens, the number of fat cells you have, is that's it. It's fixed. But what happens is the VLDL particles keep shoving more and more fatty acids um, into the adipose tissue which then, because all the cells are consuming glucose, the adipose tissue locks it down, okay? No way out. There's no way for the fatty acids that are now causing these adipose tissue cells to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, what we look at somebody and call fat, okay? There's no way for it to escape because the cells are all busy incinerating glucose to get the poison out of the blood. That is the hepatic lipid system, and you see, that's the lymphatic system is beautiful. It's as nature intended. The hepatic lipid system is again, it's it's a crisis emergency technique that the body uses to survive in circumstances which would have been incredibly rare for ancient man, where suddenly somebody has consumed a high carbohydrate moment as it would have been for our ancient ancestors. This episode is brought to you by Optimal Carnivore. Many people I talk to struggle to get enough organ meat on a carnivore diet. There's debate about whether you need to eat organs or not, but I like to supplement with organ meats and it makes me feel better and many carnivores would agree. Optimal Carnivore was created by carnivores for carnivores. In fact, I was consulted during the formulation, which is pretty cool. Um, they have a unique organ complex that combines nine different organs, liver, brain, heart, and more. Um, all from grass-fed, grass-finished animals in New Zealand. And taking six capsules a day is the same as eating an ounce of raw liver. Um, and it's, it's completely freeze-dried, and they use a very high-quality process to retain all the nutrients. You can use the link in the episode description or um, the link in my Instagram bio and use the code carnwar 10 to save a checkout and support the show. Thank you. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I really like how you walk through each of those. Um, it's very logical and uh, not something I've heard described in that way before. Um, so, so very, very original. Um, By the way, I know I tend to get going on these things. So if there's something I say and you want to jump in, please do. Okay, sure. <laughs> I, can, I, I can get on a tear. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm enthralled. I'm, I'm just listening and, and nodding a lot and taking it in. 
Um, okay. I, I heard you describe these on, on Casey's podcast and it's just, it's helpful to, to reinforce it again. Um, and, and you, you talk about, um, the delivery mechanisms for various forms of cholesterol. Um, can you talk about, I, I know this is something you address in the book, um, but kind of the myth of good versus bad cholesterol. The, the mainstream narrative is that LDL cholesterol is bad and gives you atherosclerosis, heart disease, and will eventually lead, if not addressed, will eventually lead to heart attack. And that HDL, that's the good cholesterol. And I bet if you ask 100 people whose doctors talk to them about HDL levels, and you said to those 100 people, what's good? about good cholesterol, HDL. What, what makes it good? They would have no idea, right? They, they just take their doctor's word for it. LDL bad, HDL good, okay. But in truth, neither one is good or bad. Uh, they each have their role to play. Uh, one of the things that made LDL, and, well, it started out as total cholesterol, okay, back in the day, you go back decades and decades and decades ago, the number was total cholesterol. And what caused the medical community to start this thing about high cholesterol is dangerous for your health was really, we, we think about it, look back now, it's like, are you kidding me, right? It was because they could measure it. Simple as that. They had something they could measure. They could send you out and bill you for, <laughs> they'd bill you for the procedure. They'd get these numbers back and then they could talk intelligently that, oh, look what we found. You have high total cholesterol. And then of course, over time they began, um, the, the quality and tech, technology of the test improved and they were able to distinguish things like VLDL, LDL, uh, IDL, and um, just standard LDLP, okay? So once they started being able to distinguish, then since they, they had determined that HDL was good cholesterol. They then determined that LDL was bad cholesterol. And the way they came up with that was the fact that virtually everybody who living in glucosis, that's the really important part because none of this pertains to a body in ketosis. They came to see that a body in glucosis that had high LDL oftentimes ended up with other health problems such as atherosclerosis, uh, diabetes, and so forth. What they didn't take into account or didn't decide was important was the triglyceride count. Okay, that came much later. That all of a sudden, uh-oh, your triglycerides are high. And the mainstream medical community uses the number 100. If your triglycerides are over 100, that's a problem. And that's one of the few things they're actually right about. High triglycerides is a health problem. But what it turns out in terms of LDL is this. They kept saying high LDL is you're, go you're going to die. And they disconnected that from the fact that virtually everybody in glucosis who has high LDL also has high triglycerides. Completely disconnected those two facts when it was actually the high triglycerides that are the problem, not the high LDL. And let me explain to you how we know this. Uh, we, we, I'm not gonna go into the science, I'm just gonna go into the numbers, okay? 
the medical community, the research community has spent literally billions of dollars on research concerning cholesterol. And one thing in all those billions that they've spent that they've never, ever, ever, ever concluded in a single study was that if your triglycerides are low and your LDL is high, you're at risk of anything. Okay? Never once have they concluded that. What does that tell us? Where does that tell us the problem is? The problem is with the triglycerides, because if your triglycerides are low, if you're if you're down in the you know 40s, 50s of triglycerides, but your LDL is, I don't know, 230, 240, which would give a cardiologist, you know, an apoplectic fit. Uh, there's no evidence that there's any health risk to that whatsoever. So where's the real problem? It's the triglycerides. Now, let me flip this around and talk about ketosis for a moment, because we just talked about this whole equation when in glucoses, right? So fortunately, by the time living in ketosis became something people wanted to pursue, uh, as opposed to like, you know, kids with epilepsy 100 years ago, um, the, the people could actually like go on the internet and become informed and choose this for themselves based on their knowledge. We had a lot more information by the time that moment came along. And so one of the things that we see in people who have flipped into ketosis is that their first, the first thing that happens is triglycerides crash. Now, by crash, I mean they go from healthy, uh, unhealthy high levels to expected normal levels. Okay? That's what I mean by crash. So try, the very first thing we see when somebody goes into ketosis is their triglycerides crash. Now, if high triglycerides are the problem, you can imagine normal or low triglycerides is healthy. That's absolutely factual. The other thing that we see, not in, not in everybody who's in ketosis, but in a whole lot of people who are in ketosis, is their LDL goes really high. Okay? Um, again, that's really high by mainstream medical numbers. If somebody says to me, my triglycerides are 50, I'm in ketosis, my triglycerides are 50, and my LDL is 200, I shrug my shoulders. It, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Uh, but the uninformed cardiologist would say, oh, my God, that's terrible. Uh, there is no evidence after, I don't know how many years now, people have been choosing to live in ketosis. There is not one shred of evidence uh, amongst that community that when you have low triglycerides and high LDL, sometimes astronomically high LDL, that it causes any health problems whatsoever. There's zero evidence of that. Um, one of the things that, more, you know, doctors are notorious for not keeping up on the latest research, which is a real shame. And even cardiologists that they specialize, they're supposed to, they don't. Um, and one of the things that is the true test of whether or not you're likely or prone to get atherosclerosis is your remnant cholesterol. Okay. Uh, so we take somebody who's got low triglycerides, very high LDL, uh, and we examine, we, there's an equation. People can go on the internet and look it up. It's very simple. Uh, just all you have to do is do an internet search for uh, remnant cholesterol equation. It'll tell you, add this, 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 subtract that, boom, you've got your number. Okay. 
for the purpose of today, anything 20 or over is problematic. Anything under 20 is getting better. Under 15 is really good. Okay? Uh, there are people literally who have um, LDL numbers that are in the three and four hundreds, but their remnant cholesterol numbers are 11. So remember, 20, over 20 is when you start getting in trouble. Under 15 is when you're looking really good. Okay? So obviously, 11 is absolutely fantastic. Um, my LDL is very high, but my remnant cholesterol is 13. Right. So if we look at what the, the more current, by that I mean the last handful of years, the, the more current research says concerning risk, we find that remnant cholesterol is, is really... It is the uh, gold standard, there's a platinum standard, but it's the gold standard for determining whether we're at risk for atherosclerosis. Um, so again, if you're 15 or under, got nothing to worry about. So the point is that if, if you your audience says, oh, wow, great, I'm, I'm gonna choose ketosis, I'm gonna do this. Okay? And then they go to their mainstream MD or their cardiologist, and they get a blood test, prepare for your mainstream cardiologist or your mainstream primary care physician um, to lose their shit because uh, they're going to look at those numbers and freak out, which is why I think it's so important. And they're going to say, the first thing they're going to say is, I can't let you leave the office without a prescription for statins, <laughs> right? Which is absolute asinine nonsense. Um, so if your audience chooses to go in this direction, I want them to understand that if they interact with the mainstream medical community, they need to hold their own. They need to do their own research. They need to know the facts for themselves. Hopefully I've been somewhat helpful in that regard today. They need to know the facts for themselves. And people are oddly emotionally connected to their doctors. Um, I don't get that. Uh, to me, it's like, if I don't like this accountant, I'll find another accountant, right? Um, but people are oddly connected to their doctors. I encourage people, if they have a primary care physician or cardiologist or some other form of specialist, that looks at the things we've been talking about with LDL and triglycerides and remnant cholesterol and so forth, doesn't know that and doesn't say, okay, I'll look into it and I'll see you next month. Uh, but instead says, oh, no, this is bad. This is wrong. You need to do this. And you need to stop what you're doing. Go get another doctor. Because there's no mileage in paying a professional to provide a professional service to you when the person isn't truly professional. If they were truly professional, they'd know already what you and I are talking about today, Scott. Yeah, I think that's huge. I think people, and, and something um, I've heard you talk about previously is like, N equals one experiments. And I'm a huge advocate for, for taking your health into your own hands. I think you have to. Um, in today's age, you have to become self-educated, um, at least know enough to ask the right questions. Um, and I think uh, being able to, to self-experiment, see what, how, what works for you in terms of diet, um, and also what, um, what makes sense and, and who it makes sense for you to work with. Um, as you said, like if, if you were working with, uh, an accountant, you wouldn't keep going with them. If something they were, they were telling you didn't make sense, or if you didn't trust them or didn't think or they were delivering. 
the highest or you possible knew it to be service. wrong. Yeah, if yeah. you knew they were wrong, yeah, absolutely, you would go somewhere else. Um, so I think people should be um, empowered to do the same with their their physicians. Um, and and something um, I've heard you talk about also um, is a, a research blackout pertaining to um, some of these topics. Can you talk about what that is? Um, and then maybe we can lead that into some of the ways in which um, you're working with Dave Feldman and pursuing research um, on your own terms. Yes, thank you. What we're seeing today, where we have um, the most chronically ill, here in the United States, we have the most chronically ill society in all of human history. Despite our wealth, despite our prowess with science and medicine, we have the most chronically ill society in human history. That is a result of consumers supporting trillion dollar industries. And for the most part, they're supporting those trillion dollar industries because they are the victims of a 60 year disinformation campaign, a campaign about how human physiology truly works, which is really why I want people to read body science. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a physiology book, it's a science book, made easy. Okay? You've read some of the chapters. It's a physiology book broken down so everybody can understand. But the key before you can get anyone in my opinion, the key to get people to make change is for them to understand everything they've been, not everything, most of the things they've been told up until this moment were falsehoods. More importantly, they were known falsehoods. Many of them were known to be false for decades and were still promoted by the establishment, the, the government and these trillion dollar industries working in conjunction. Um, they, they, spent decades pumping the American people full of things they knew were false. Concerning physiology generally with an emphasis on nutritional physiology. So then people would eat this crap. And by the way, I don't mean just junk food. (laughs) There's a lot of things that people think are healthy that in terms of what your body needs, they're they're worthless. They're worse. And in some cases, they're worse than worthless. But people are eating them thinking they're making themselves healthy and they're making themselves sick. Again, please, please read body science if you're inclined to know something. Then you can make your mind. Once you're not ignorant, you can make up your mind, do whatever the hell you want. Um, So I I think we probably, anybody who's involved in the health and nutrition and fitness arena um, that is honest knows the games that are being played by people like the FDA. the FDA, it, I don't know if you're familiar with the term regulatory capture. What that means is the industry being regulated, um, it ends up controlling the decisions of the administrative agency that is tasked with um, regulating it. Okay. And clearly, when it comes to big food, uh, regulatory capture has been in place for many, many decades. And so then we have, of course, the the Uh, FDA works closely with organizations like the National Institutes of Health. So you have a situation where these multi-trillion dollar industries within the market of uh, big food, that they are big food, 
they basically tell the administrators at the top of NIH, the administrators at the top of FDA, you will not fund research that shows that our industry is killing the American people. You won't do that. If you do, there will be consequences. Um, when you choose to leave the FDA and you want to come over and work for one of us for you know five hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, uh-uh. you lost that opportunity when you disobeyed. Okay? And of course, we all know that one of the things that goes on with the federal government, these agencies, is the top executives in those federal regulatory agencies. They move across to the industry. They spend several years in the industry. They move back over to the agency again, and then we we pretend that these industries are being regulated. Really, what these agencies are doing is they create a false patina of credibility. Oh, yeah, that's fine. That's great because we say so. Okay. And the American people who don't, on the whole, don't understand these things, they go, well, the FDA said it's safe. The National Institutes of Health recommend, and, and on and on we go, ending up with the most chronically ill society in the history of mankind. There have been small studies. There, uh, For instance, the Pentagon uh, actually did a small study on ketosis, but it was very limited. It was only for to, to see if it would assist Navy SEALs who are on rebreathing apparatus avoid uh, having seizures when they've spent too long on their rebreathers. Um, because, of course, we know from back in, all the way back to the 1920s that living in ketosis would minimize certain kinds of seizures in young people and so forth. So the Navy. Uh, the Special Warfare Department, they spent, I don't know how much they spent, um, nor have I seen the results, uh, testing Navy SEALs, having them live in ketosis and then get on their rebreathers and see if it stops them from having underwater seizures. NIH did a very brief study. I think it was for three weeks. And the goal of the study was so that they could say it's either we don't see any health problems or we do see health problems uh, living in ketosis a whopping three weeks. And NIH from that whopping three weeks concluded that they didn't know if it was safe, but it didn't appear to be unsafe. And the paraphrasing uh, their conclusion. I advocate in body science that what we really need is we really need a large scale professional well done study that takes thousands of people who are living in ketosis and compares their health over a lengthy period of time uh, I'm going to just throw out as a possibility a decade, compares their health to the health of people who are living in glucosis, which wouldn't be hard to find volunteers for that. You've got 99% of the world's population is probably living in glucosis. Wouldn't it be fascinating to find out um, what the difference is in uh, how many visits to the doctor, what sort of what your blood tests reveal? Um, atherosclerosis, diabetes, hypertension, metabolic syndrome, uh, all of the things that are, are that concern our society massively in terms of health and how they're treated by the medical community, wouldn't it be great to see the difference in those things between people who live in glucosis and people who live in ketosis? Um, that When I talk about the funding blackout, that's what I'm talking about. And the reason that is never going to happen is because all the people at the top of organizations like the FDA and the NIH, they understand what side of their bread is butter. And they are never going to go against big food. They are never, because it would literally, the results would cost 
these trillion dollar industries would literally cost them at least hundreds of billions of dollars in lost profit. And that's impermissible. We, I've come to the conclusion, I'm 63 now, I've come to the conclusion that America is not so much a country like I was raised to believe. I think we all were, right? It's more like a business platform and there's some, that has citizens. So if trillion dollar corporations tell the government, ah, don't do that, that's going to harm us financially, that's the way the government will play it. And as I'm sure you know, the, I'm going to guess well over 90% of meaningful research funding for these large scale studies that I'm talking about comes from government. Yeah. And I, I think um, that that's why it's so important. Some of the work um, folks like Dave Feldman are doing. Um, can you talk about how you got involved with him and, and maybe some of the, some of the research you've worked with him on? Sure. Um, Dave has uh, in the last several years, I mean, his, his work has really, it went from something that was interesting and novel to something now that's very complex and useful, and it's, it's great what he's doing. I came across, Dave, when I started my research on cholesterol, and I wanted a view other than the mainstream establishment view of cholesterol. Um, I wanted to know if there were facts out there that were different than what the mainstream was putting out. And I stumbled across Dave. And of course, as you well know, Dave's work is, he's, he's got to be at this point, the most knowledgeable person, at least in the United States, if not the world, on cholesterol. And he's not, he's never spent a day in medical school. Um, by trade, he's an engineer. And, uh, and he took that engineering framework. He made quite a bit of money, by the way, in software engineering. And so now he's taken that acumen that he has and that, that the reasoning of an engineer and he's taken it and he's applied it to the methodologies to find out the truth about cholesterol. And of course, now I think it would be fair to, to say he is uh, fine tuning what was already proved a couple of years ago, um, which is some of the things we've shared today, the truth about cholesterol and things like triglycerides versus LDL and so forth. One of the interesting things with Dave was I was my first time I actually spoke with him. I, I was researching a very obscure point of physiology. And I reached out to a number of medical professional professionals, including the medical doctor who is considered um, the top expert in the U.S., on cholesterol. I reached out to all these people and I asked this question. I didn't even get a response from anybody. And, and my presumption is because they didn't actually know and they weren't going to take the time to go find out in order to answer my question. But why don't they know if they're, if they're at the pinnacle of their careers? Why don't they know? Right. So I reached out to Dave, who's an engineer with mo no medical training. And I asked him the same question. Instant answer. Okay. He knew it. Um, what is the name of it? Tom, I don't know if you know the name. He, he's considered the national medical expert on cholesterol. He's got to be in his late 70s or early 80s now. Tom something. I can't remember his okay. last name. I couldn't even get a response from him yeah, about wow. the question. But Feldman knew the answer instantly and provided it instantly. Um, Dave has a copy of my book. He was one of the very first people once it was published that I sent it to. Um, and one of the things I like about Dave is 
he doesn't care, and I mean this in, in the most complimentary sense, he doesn't care what you think. He cares what the data shows. And I think one of the big problems we have in this country is that um, in many, many, many areas of our lives, the American people reject um, facts, data, and evidence because they would prefer to think of something this way, or emotionally it's more comfortable to say it's that way. And I don't, I don't think that's a good approach. Um, it's not the approach I have in life. And so, and David's very much the same way. He doesn't, he doesn't care whether we're slaying a belief that's been in place for a hundred years. He just doesn't care. Uh, he, he says, what does the data show? And if the data shows this, then sorry, your mainstream narrative is wrong. It's false because the data says so. And so Dave and I immediately hit it off in that sense that, uh, we both have that construct. It's all about the data. It's all about the science. It's all about the evidence. And it's not about how you feel about things. It's not about what your MD says. It's not about what your cardiologist says. It's not about what, it's not about the narrative that's still being promoted from a study 40 years ago that's since been disproven. It's not about any of that. It's about what does the data show? And that's, that's, where, that's where my respect for Dave Feldman initially came from. And, and by the way, the, he does. Anybody can follow Dave. Uh, he's got cholesterolcode.com. Yeah, he puts out <clears throat> so much free information. It's incredible. Yes. And also, your listeners, if they want to participate as uh, in, in some of Dave's studies, uh, they can do that because Dave is constantly enrolling people in these studies. So if you say, okay, I want to live in ketosis or I don't want to live in ketosis, it's all, it's all the same. Um, and then you want to reach out to Dave Feldman and say, I want to be a part of what you're doing. I want to be a part of showing what the data shows. Um, uh, what was the old expression from the 60s? If you're, not, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So if somebody says, I want to be part of the solution, <clears throat> they can go to cholesterolcode.com and Dave puts up all the information about the trials that he's running. Not, not all of them, um, but a good portion of them. And, you're and, and he's happy for people to sign up and be participants if they're willing. And he has people all over the world, by the way. This is yeah. not just a U.S. thing. Yeah. He has yeah, people he's from, from such every an amazing country. individual. I, I have so much respect for Dave. Um, and can you talk about your own experience um, moving from uh, living in ketosis, only living in ketosis, to um, removing mm -hmm. plant foods entirely um, and moving yeah. towards a carnivore way of eating? As you probably gleaned from my early story, I first did keto because that's that's what I was introduced to. That's what I did my initial research on, and I did that, and it was it was very successful. Um, but of course, I'd heard of carnivore, and so eventually, I decided that perhaps I should look at that as well, and so I started looking into carnivore, and anybody who eats day in and day out the keto diet, which the, the typical numbers are 80% fat, 15% protein, and 5% or less carbs. Anybody who does that understands it can be challenging to, make, to get those numbers dialed in just right every meal all day long, okay? So I was looking at carnivore, and again, just like with keto, I wanted to do the research, and I wanted to make sure that... Um, 
that again, I wasn't receiving some sort of misinformation from people who favored carnivore, right? So I did the research. And once again, I told Jen, I want to do carnivore. And she said, okay, let's do it. And that was more than two and a half years ago. And the switch to carnivore has been absolutely phenomenal. Um, Like I said, I'd been in the gym for decades when I started keto. And because it was only 15% protein, I lost, I was a very large person as far as muscle mass is concerned. So fortunately, I had had some I could lose. Um, But I lost a lot of muscle mass when I was only 15% protein. Uh, So, and then I tried to up the protein and that kind of stopped, that stayed the muscle loss. Some of the interesting things when I went fully carnivore, uh, much of the muscle mass that I had lost without my changing my workout, that's the important thing that muscle mass came back. So what that told me was that the muscles had been wanting the level of protein and fat that I was giving them through carnivore, that the the, the, the cells that are in the, in the red muscle tissue, they had wanted that. And I had not at 15%, even when I raised it up to 20%, 25%, I had not been giving them what they wanted and needed because the muscle mass just, came back on almost magically once I went to carnivore. Carnivore is much more simple uh, than trying to prepare meals on the keto diet with the 8015.5. You get some meat, you cook it, you eat it. You don't even need to cook it. There are are some carnivores out there that eat raw meat every single day. Um, And there might actually be some advantages. I haven't haven't been bold enough yet to do the the raw meat, Um, but I'm planning to experiment with that here in the near future. also, uh, because of my stupidity over those decades in the gym, uh, I tore my shoulders up. I have level four arthritis in both my shoulders, uh, osteoarthritis. And it was so incredibly painful to move my shoulders around when I was in the gym doing things. Uh, that is has been so dramatically reduced since I've gone to carnivore. Now, there's no dietary cure for level four arthritis. I mean, the damage is done. Um, because I, I, when I was 25, I refused to listen to people who are my age now. I refused to take their great advice. And I, I basically destroyed my shoulders. Um, but the pain reduction, I, I used to not be able to sleep. I'm a side sleeper. I used to do 20 minutes on one side. The pain would wake me up. I'd flip over. I'd do 20 or 30 minutes on the other side. That pain would wake me up. I'd flip over. This would go on all night long. And obviously that's not sound sleep and it's not good for your health. Um, That improved when I went keto. When I went carnivore, I should say it improved considerably. When I went carnivore, gone. I could literally sleep all night long on one shoulder now and never wake up and never be in pain. So uh, it has made an absolutely dramatic difference. The other thing is, on, when you're doing the keto diet, most people use an app on their phone to track their macros. And um, I, I continue to track my macros on Carnivore just because I, I do things like this. I come and speak to people, and I want to make sure I have all the numbers if somebody asks. Um, but literally, when somebody go, if, if somebody's tired of that, when they go carnivore, they can just get rid of the app. They they can not ever do that again because you're many days since I've gone carnivore, 
I have zero carbs. Um, yesterday, my wife and I went in and spent the day in Vegas, and uh, I had ended up with two grams of carbs for the entire day. And that two grams of carbs was for the copious amount of cheese that In-N-Out Burger put on my four by four. Um, I don't know if people where you're at, whether you have In-N-Out, but they have, uh, uh, you can get, a, they call it protein sauce lettuce wrap. So for lunch, we stop, we get these burgers. They've got nothing on them. None of the, the sauces or anything. It's just um, beef and cheese with a little bit of lettuce wrapped around them so you don't get your hands all greasy. And uh, yeah, and so I got my carbs, my whopping two grams of carbs yesterday from the abundant amount of cheese that in and out put on my four by four. But many days when I'm home, working out of my home office, uh, I have zero carbs. So you don't need to track because you are, you don't need to wonder like, am I over 30 grams of carbs today? Am I going to throw myself out of ketosis? Because you're never going to come within shouting distance of that. So it's, it's, and it tastes great too. Um, you know, that's that some people say, you, you eat nothing but meat. How do you do that? Well, I, I don't know. I can't speak for everybody else, but I love it. I mean, whether we're talking about steaks, whether we're talking about ground beef, whether we're talking about pork, uh, occasionally we have some pepperoni. We sort of do a pizza like thing, but without the, the bread. Um, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Tastes marvelous. So you know, I try never to tell anybody what to do. Um, I, that's not my ethos. I, I want to inform people and then encourage them perhaps to make the decision that, that they think is best for them. Um, if somebody is questioning whether they want to go carnivore, um, this goes back, Scott, to your comment about N, N of 1, um, by all means, do it. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? Um, and by the way, when you do these N of 1 things, unless something terrible happens, I mean, you should probably give it about a, you know, about four months in order to determine how you really feel about it and, and if you're having blood tests, what the numbers show and so forth. So if you're considering carnivore, I would encourage you to do it. Um, have in mind that you're going to stick to it at least four months. See how you feel. Um, I'm going to predict that you will feel absolutely amazing and you'll never go back. Now, with that said, I there are people I know, good friends of mine, who simply cannot do it because up here they need variety. Okay? Um, it doesn't matter that you can eat like six different kinds of meat over you know course of several days. It bothers them that they that they feel cheated in some way that they don't actually get variety, and that's obviously an emotional thing. And you can't change them. People are who they are, right? So for those people, perhaps the keto diet is better. But if you can get beyond that and just say, I'm going to enjoy eating meat, then yeah, I would encourage people to give carnivore a spin. It's been absolutely fantastic for my wife and I. And obviously, I speak to a lot of people in the ketosis community. And I don't know anyone who's ever gone carnivore and gone back. I, anecdotal. I just personally don't know anybody who's gone carnivore and ever gone back. Yeah, I've reintroduced carbs <laughs> myself. Yeah, have you? Yeah, I was strictly extent? carnivore for three years, um, and I've reintroduced a lot of carbohydrate foods into my diet. Do you know how many grams a day? Um, now, right now, I'm eating about 800 grams of carbs a day. Oh, so you left ketosis behind? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I um, I wasn't able to maintain my weight on on carnivore. I was I couldn't stop losing weight, and that was a problem for me. 
Really? Yeah. Um, now, I know this isn't the purpose for the interview, but do you mind yeah. if I ask you how many calories you were eating in a day? I was eating about 3,500. Um, and you couldn't keep your weight off. Yeah, yeah. And I was about 160 pounds at the time. I'm about 200 pounds now. Um, and I'm a gym rat. <laughs> um, okay. But yeah, I, um, I, no, I, I couldn't maintain my weight. And I also found after working with a lot of, worked with a lot of specialists in the carnivore space regarding my digestion, but I couldn't consistently tolerate more than 150 grams of fat a day. Um, so if you do the math, that means a lot of my calories had to come from pure protein, um, which isn't necessarily a problem, but there are, I think a lot of downsides to consuming, you know, 2000 plus calories of protein a day. Um, it's, it's metabolically expensive. I was sweating all the time. I was peeing all the time. Um, and so I, I found it was just an easier route to, to slowly and very systematically inc increase my carbs. Um, so when you, when you were in carnivore, can you recall, cause I heard you say it, it was been about yeah. three years now. Yeah. Um, can you recall about how many grams of protein you were consuming in a day at, at 3,500 calories? Um, well, if it was 150 grams of fat, 150 times nine, that's 1,350. So, so you must be, be consuming well so over, that was over 500, grams. over 500 grams of protein a day. Yeah, that, that's quite a bit. And it's funny you mentioned the peeing thing because I constantly have yeah. to tell people um, the very the very process of um, breaking down amino acids and yeah. forming amino acid peptide chains um, releases H2O. Um, and so, yeah, because that's one of the things I try and warn people about is that when you go carnivore, you're going to be peeing usually a lot, like in the first hour, an hour and yeah. a half after you eat your carnivore meal, yeah. because your body is doing what it does and it produces that as a byproduct of the digestive process. Yeah. 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 So I to totally get you on that. I, I have the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like if I have a big steak breakfast and I get on the road to go somewhere, I'm like, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know. No, I'm I, I loved it. I felt fantastic doing it. I'm obviously still a huge advocate of the diet. I think it's awesome for you know, most people. Um, I just, I found that for me, it worked well to slowly reintroduce carbs. And I, I use basically, um, you may have heard of the Whole30 diet, um, but I it's basically, not. it's basically like an elimination diet um, okay. that gets you down to what is kind of close to paleo. And then they recommend slowly reintroducing one food at a time, not a food group, but a food. So you'll have like a banana for one banana a day for three days, and then you'll go back to baseline and you'll note how this affect my mood, my satiety, oh. um, and my digestion. And then you'll test another food. Um, so it's going, it's, it's an ongoing end of one process. Yes. Yes. And that's exactly okay. what I did. So I started with a banana. I tried honey. I tried, um, yogurt. I tried berries. And slowly I found which, which foods I can tolerate and which I can't. And, you know, a lot of like cruciferous vegetables I don't do well with. Um, but I was now, able when to- you say, When you say tolerate, um, what would be an example of intolerance? A lot of gas. Um, okay. Or indigestion. Digestive issues primarily? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Or- um, do, you, do you still have a spleen? Yes. Huh. Yeah. As you probably know, a lot of people 
who've had their spleens removed for various reasons, um, they have to go very slowly um, moving into the keto diet or carnivore. Uh, they can't, yeah. for me, I, I went overnight, right? By day four, yeah. I flipped. But they have to go more slowly because they're not producing all the bile salts that are necessary. And, and, it, and it, yeah. they, ha- they have to sort of grow that process again, if you will. Yeah, I think that was ultimately my problem um, and why I couldn't, couldn't consistently digest more than 150 grams of fat a day. Um, but yeah, now, I still use say- it as a tool. My wife is carnivore um, and has been for years. Um, and so I, it's still, I, I mean, I think it is probably the best baseline diet for everyone. Um, but yeah, it, just long-term, it didn't fit with my goals. May I ask, and again, this is just curiosity. Yeah, I'm no, please, I'm enjoying I'm not this. going anywhere with this. I'm yeah, just personal yeah. curiosity. Yeah. When you ate more than 150 grams of fat, when you said, you know, you, you yeah. couldn't tolerate that well, was yeah. that also a digestive problem? Or yeah, so other- exactly what happened is I felt fantastic for yeah. like, so I felt better eating higher fat on carnivore than lower fat. And yeah. what would happen is I would switch it up and I would increase my fat to over 150 grams. And I would track that and I would do it for, I'd feel great for like four days. I'd have more energy, more satiety, um, and then in better sleep. And then somewhere between seven days and 14 days of eating 150 grams of fat or more, I would start getting um, belching in the middle of the night, very far away from my meals, um, like 3 a.m., even though my last meal would be at like 4 p.m. and it would be my smallest meal of the day. And I would get just like so uncomfortable bloating and gas in my stomach. Um, It was extremely painful. Wow. Yeah. Um, By the way, if you don't mind, because you just reminded me of something. Yeah. um, This pertains to ketosis generally on the keto diet and carnivore even more so. I cannot, I don't know if you've heard this yourself, Scott, but I cannot tell you how many people have told me uh, I couldn't stay in ketosis because I didn't poop every day. This seems to be, this is one of these weird things that people latch onto, you know, the concept of being the people uh, regular, right? That's the word. (laughs) And people are brainwashed into believing that somehow it portends good health if they are what the establishment calls regular. And I've had to counsel a number of people to let that go, no pun intended, um, that your body knows exactly when it wants to get rid of waste. So when when your body is functioning in ketosis, um, sometimes you may poop every day, regular, right? Um, Sometimes two or three times a day, sometimes not for three or four days. And it totally doesn't mean anything. Uh, It means that your body is not yet ready to release the waste that's present. And when it's ready, it will. But I have had a number of people tell me, I'm sorry, I couldn't do it because I didn't poop every single, you know, it's the old story, right? You sit down in the morning, you have a cup of coffee and oh, off you go into the restaurant, right? Um, yeah, we feed so- my dog carnivore, and she produces a lot less waste than other dogs. Um, and and will live a lot perfectly longer. Healthy, too. she's very healthy. She'll live longer. Her coat is amazing. She has no health problems. She's great. 
And so, okay. So first of all, big respect for you doing that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's so. I, I completely agree with you. I don't think I don't think producing more waste is a good. Mark. <laughs> oh, so thank you for sharing your yeah your story yeah of course. That. Thank you for coming on. This has been fantastic. I feel like we should definitely do a part two in the future. There's more things I'd love to cover with you, but uh, it's been a pleasure. Do, do, I have, do I have twenty more seconds? Yeah, please. Okay, I just wanted to comment. I want to go back to the LDL thing for a moment. And I wanted to make a big, broad statement. When your body is in ketosis, it will never produce more of any given substance that is healthy for you or less than any given, any given substance that is healthy for you unless you have something, a genetic abnormality. Okay? There's always that codicil on everything we talk about unless you have a genetic abnormality. But if you're genetically, I'm not going to say normal, um, genetically like most 99% of the rest of the planet, then um, your body will never produce anything, any more of a substance that is healthy or so much less of a substance that it's unhealthy. Okay. So trust when you're in ketosis, trust your body. Uh, can I also tell people where to go grab body science? Yes, please. Yeah. I'll have links okay. to everything in the show notes, but please. Okay. Thank you. Um, simply go to drreality.news. That's drreality.news. Um, and you just click on store. And I've got some other books there that uh, people who are people who are looking for truth uh, may appreciate those as well as body science while they're there. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading all of it. Um, I really love your style of thinking, Dave, and, and really appreciate you coming on today. Um, and yeah, this has been really excellent and uh, look forward to, to more conversations to come. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carnivore Cast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out and share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered or who would you like to hear from in the carnivore research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at carnivorecast or go to carnivorecast.com. You can also email me at info at carnivorecast.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.